and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Alison Brager. Alison is a neuroscientist for the United States Army. She's worked at the storied Walter Reed Army Institute of Research outside of Washington, D.C., where she and her team have leveraged sleep science discoveries to provide fatigue management solutions to the front lines. At present, she is an athlete on the Army's Warrior Fitness Team and serves as the Battalion's Director of Human Performance and Outreach Education. She sits on fatigue management working groups for the Office of the Army Surgeon General, United States Government, and NATO. She is also under candidate selection for the Army Astronaut Program in order to do research on the International Space Station. This past March, she was deployed to New York City to co-lead the COVID-19 Clinical Testing Laboratory on the Field Support Hospital, established at the Jacob Jarvis Convention Center. She was on a 2013 and 2015 CrossFit Games team and competed as an individual in 2012 and 2014 Southeast CrossFit Regionals. Alison Brigger is also a CrossFit OG dating back to 2011. Her popular science book, Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain, which she started writing after the 2013 CrossFit Games and had it published right before the 2015 CrossFit Games, bridges her own athletic anecdotes with the latest neuroscience and biohacks for elite performance. On this episode, Alison talks about her decision to join the military, the various roles and opportunities within their career so far, from leading in a clinical laboratory during COVID-19 in New York, to being a member of the Army Warrior Fitness Team, to being put forward for the Army Astronaut Program, the benefits of sleep as well as the risk of not getting enough sleep, the importance of sleep quality and quantity, and how people can set themselves up for the best possible night's sleep. Good afternoon, Alison, and welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. No, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to come sit down and speak to me. Um, I've also got to say a very big thank you to Kate Colvin, um, who introduced us and helped get this ball rolling. Yes, uh, we, uh, we make quite the dream team in the uh, human performance world. <laughs> well, Alison, honestly, it's, uh, I've been looking forward to chat to you. I've been a big fan of your work and I've heard you on a few other podcasts. Um, so I was really keen to get you down here and just uh, chat to you in more depth about your work and what you've been doing. Um, for anyone who hasn't come across you and the work you've done, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of where your career started out and where you're at currently now? Sure. Uh, so I am one of the few neuroscientists for the Army, uh, but I actually have not been in the Army for that long, about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing neuroscience research for about the past 15 years. Uh, my specific area of expertise is more related to behavioral genetics, so this idea um, that you're looking at unique mutations, whether they're um, you know, direct genetic manipulation or their naturally occurring mutations um, in the genetic code and then how that maps on to unique behaviors that we mm-hmm. call phenotypes. Or we look at unique behaviors and then we try to trace back the source um, of the genetic and, and molecular events that lead to those um, unique behaviors. So it's this idea of um, sort of pre-selecting um, for, you know, the environment, especially in, in, in very extreme environments where, um, you know, some people are just more resilient or more sensitive than others, mm-hmm. just simply based on their genetic landscape. Uh, so that's been the basis of my work for the past 15 years. I started out in animal models, 
Um, and then I transitioned to human work when I started working for the Army four years ago. Um, and when I started working for the Army, I decided I wanted to uh, revisit my call to selfless service, and I commissioned as an officer, and I'm presently a major in the Army. Nice. And obviously, you say you've been serving over there now for the last three years or so in the, the U.S. Army. What was the decision, you know, to, to prompt you to join into the military? So I was going to join the Army after, uh, right around 9-11. I was getting recruited by all the military academies for track and field at the time, mm -hmm. uh, Navy and West Point. I actually got into um, West Point, and it was my top choice. But then 9-11 happened, and my parents were basically like, no, you are absolutely not going to West Point or joining the military, um, which, you know, at the time, I yeah, I was disappointed. But, you know, at the same time, I uh, I was fortunate in that I was recruited by all the Ivy Leagues. So it's not like I, you know, went on to have a, a poor education experience. I ended up going to Brown University, which is kind of ironic now because Brown and the, uh, the it's kind of the antithesis of West Point in terms of the, the types of students and the mentality and the mindset of uh, like a very liberal progressive approach towards education. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's uh that was my initial calling. And then uh, when I started working for the Army with research, uh, I was called in my very first day by uh, somebody who turned out to be my academic grandfather. Uh, he and my graduate mentor had actually studied under the same person just years and years ago. And uh, he sat me down and he's like, you know, I really feel like you have the, uh, the leadership potential to make a great officer. And I think you should consider joining the military and I was like I'm 33 years old why would the army need a 33 year old in the army especially as a neuroscientist and then I learned about this wonderful world of we're called 71 foxtrots uh, mm -hmm. it's a, a bunch of research psychologists um, neuroscientists social psychologists um, and we deal with issues um, related to military psychiatry and, and mental health of the force, um, you know, at the level of social behavior, all the way down to what I do and a few others do um, at the genetic molecular basic research level. I know you're doing some big uh, things within the army and the projects and stuff you've got going on there as well. But I know on, I'll call it more uh, developmental side of things as well, you've had some great opportunities there as well, being part of the is it the US Army Warrior Fit Team, is it referred to as for the CrossFit? Yes. Yeah, so this is a brand new initiative that is, uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, intuitive recruiting tactic to reach out to the next generation of, of kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're going away from this brick and mortar style of recruiting uh, where a kid basically goes to a, a shopping complex or the recruiters come to their high school. And it's more about getting um, the army and that you know the talents that soldiers have outside of the armies up front and center within the general public uh, so we're part of one of three recruiting initiatives using esports uh, functional fitness largely crossfit and strongman mm -hmm. and then actually uh, acoustic alternative music uh, to connect with generation z 
Uh, and it, it, you know, quite honestly, I think it is a it's intuitive because I, yes, we still have um, you know the, the war overseas that we've been fighting for you know a very long time. But um, I think one of the biggest things the army is most interested in is coming up with quality versus quantity of soldiers Um, if you have a quality group of soldiers who have the physical and mental resiliency piece that's going to go a much longer way not just in the short term for accomplishing a mission but in the long term in terms of um, you know prevention against mental health and, and physical um, issues that come with serving in the military than somebody, you know, just grabbing as many kids as possible and, and operating under strength through numbers, um, yeah. strength through numbers that that operational tactic and strategy, in my humble opinion, doesn't doesn't work anymore, um, especially for those of us who have been in the field of um, military psychiatry and mental health uh, for the past few years. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you can see as well from chanting numerous other guys involved in the military, like the the battlefields change with regards to like the warfare and stuff, and like the the, the modern soldier is very different nowadays, like both cognitively and uh, physically as well, um, how yeah. they engage in that. Um, but I also know for yourself, Alison, with everything else you've been involved in, you've also been uh, selected as a candidate for the the Army Astronaut Program. Could you yeah. talk to us a little bit about how did that come about and, you know, what, what's the, the step-by-step process been going through that pathway? Sure. Uh, I really need to give a shout out to my brigade Sergeant Major, uh, Sergeant Major Lake. He is really the person who made me situ- situationally aware of this program. Um, I mean, long story short, I've always wanted to be an astronaut, you know, I, Uh, I grew up in Ohio, and Ohio, as you know, uh, has not just the most presidents uh, in the United States, but we also have the most astronauts, and, you know, you spend your whole childhood learning about the Wright brothers, visiting the different aerospace and aeronautical museums around, um, around the state, and I also actually had a great uncle, well, Uncle Carl, he's still alive, he's 92, and he actually was a program manager uh, for the Apollo space missions. Uh, So I had a a keen interest in space very early on through Uncle Carl, and then I remember in second grade dressing up as Neil Armstrong and doing a whole, like, biographical report of his life. Um, You know, as that kid growing up, I had like the glow in the dark stars above my my bed every night and I was fascinated with constellations and had like a telescope and a planetarium, not a planetarium, but uh, like one of those mini like at home ones. Um, Always loved visiting the planetarium. Uh, Actually, my high school had a planetarium, believe it or not. Um, so yeah, space has always been on my mind. Obviously, I thought the only way you became an astronaut, though, was being some, you know, war hero, uh, and you flew planes for the Air Force, or you were uh, a a Navy shipman. Uh, But yeah, so Sergeant Major Lake, he uh, told me about the Army astronaut program, and he's like, I can't think of anyone more perfect than you for this. Uh, and actually, I found out at the time a classmate of mine from Brown, Jessica Meir, 
uh, was up in space and she and I actually have very similar research trajectories. Uh, she looks a lot at the underlying physiological and molecular underpinnings of survival in extreme settings. Uh, she had done some work in Antarctica. I also have done some work in Antarctica. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just meant to be. So I applied, there was over 12,000 people from the army who applied and I found out uh, a few months ago that I was uh, one of the top selections. And so now uh, I'm sort of in this pipeline of people and just waiting for, for NASA to hopefully make that call. And, uh, and if they make that call, then next fall, I head to Houston to basically start astronaut training and hopefully we'll i mean i would 100 percent go on that mission to mars yeah. uh that's that's being planned right now i mean i I'd honestly do anything um yes there's great risk involved um you know but that's you have to have go in with the assumption that you know you're you might not come home so i'm mm -hmm. perfectly fine taking those risks just for the pursuit of discovery um yeah i actually had a department chair once who he sat me down one day and he's like, you know, I, I don't think you'll be a great scientist, meaning like you're not going to have like founda foundational groundbreaking discoveries, but you're going to be somebody who just discovers really cool things because you have that like Christopher Columbus mentality about you or like Magellan. I like uh -huh. to use Magellan better than Christopher Columbus because Christopher Columbus is kind of a dick. But uh, <laughs> uh but, you know, I've, that's always been me. I've always just been somebody willing to take risks, uh, put myself in situations where I feel this sense of calmness in the storm. And, uh, yeah, just love this. You know, that's why I love being a scientist. It's right. The constant pursuit of knowledge and discovery. <laughs> no, that's absolutely awesome, Alison. I mean, how many kids, you know, out there want to grow up and be an astronaut and now like you're, you're on your way in that pipeline. Um, you're saying, obviously, you're waiting to get the call from NASA. How long do you reckon that's going to roughly take and what's that pipeline going to look like for you once you get selected? Do you know offhand any of the physical or uh, mental demand like tests and procedures that's going to be involved? Yeah, I mean, I have a sense. Um, I know they do a lot of their maneuver training underwater. Um, I'm already sort of getting ahead of that. Um, actually plan on taking a combat casualty care uh, dive medicine course that a, a colleague of mine teaches over at the U.S. Army and, and Navy's medical school in Washington, D.C. Um, and if, if I don't happen to get into that, I plan to, um, my sergeant major is trying to help me enroll in um, it's a it's a helicopter crash survival like casualty evacuation course. Just mm -hmm. start doing things. I've I've done scuba before, <laughs> not very extensively. It was more inside of a, a college swimming pool. But uh, you know, I want to start putting myself in situations where there are uh, you know more conditions of of high uh, situational awareness and and uh, cognitive stress. You know, the physical piece I got that hands down. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be an elite athlete uh for the past 35 years of my life so uh, i know i won't struggle with any of the physical pieces i think it's more the cognitive and situational awareness pieces that um i really need to uh put my my efforts towards that's cool and i mean 
obviously you're taking the steps now to get yourself prepared as best you can for it. And that's really cool. You mentioned about the, the medical side of things as well, obviously in light of everything that's going on globally at the moment, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, me and you chatted about briefly before you've been based over in New York as well as a, was it as a clinical lead? Was it the testing laboratories over in New York? Yep. Yeah. I, um, you know, when, when COVID happened, um, you know, I kind of felt like a loser because all my colleagues back at Walter Reed were in some capacity working on the vaccine development or the testing capabilities. Uh, it was sort of this beautiful all hands on deck. If you had a PhD in science approach towards, you know, helping this fight against COVID. Um, and, you know, I was kind of feeling, yeah, left out. And so I, I'm, texted a friend uh and I was like hey can you get me back to Walter Reed like I I want to help out and he's like actually I think I could get you to help out at a field support hospital which are these mobile hospitals that can be rapidly uh, deployed and erected and established in any austere environment everywhere it's a beautiful system the army uh, medical community has created Mm -hmm. and um so anyway, he got me in contact with uh, Lieutenant Colonel McGee, and uh, I just assumed I was going to Texas. Uh, this particular field support hospital was based out of Fort Hood, just um, right outside of Austin, Texas. But sure enough, I, this random Thursday, I got a, an email with a, a no-knock deployment, like, hey, get in your car, go to base, grab your field gear. Um, with the expectation that you're going to be staying in a, in a tent, much like they train us when we do our army medical training out in the field, drive to New York. And uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a surreal experience and we could definitely talk more about it if you have time. Um, yeah, definitely. Was, definitely. Awesome. Love to hear the experience of being obviously boots on the ground and, you know, the demands like logistically as well of such a big operation like that. Yeah, so it, it was interesting because, you know, there's so many, there's so many government and, and state um, agencies involved with this. Um, you know, obviously the state of New York, they sort of oversee the whole operation, uh, but then they work closely with the Public Health Service and FEMA. Um, and so it was interesting and in that for the first time and probably one of the few times in my Army career um, that you had, like, senior leaders within the army the navy the air force having to take orders from the public health service and and fema like that's you know that's usually something you don't think about and i think i mean i can't speak to the level of the top because i wasn't on the operational side of the house but i do think there was these interesting like political hoops to jump through um just day in and day out because you know at the end of the day like the military wants to be in charge, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, besides that, I mean, it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting experience. Uh, one is because we didn't know what to expect, right? So um, at first we had uh, basically beds set up for seeing over 3,000 patients. Um, and in the beginning, we weren't supposed to take any COVID patients. It was supposed to be COVID convalescent or uh, non-COVID patients. And uh, that changed quickly because of the political and media optics of it, right? Like, 
this field support hospital set up? Why aren't they taking COVID patients? So sort of uh, without any warning, we had to prepare to be a, a COVID accepting facility, which of course is, you know, wasn't just challenging. We had enough PPE and we had beautiful standard operating procedures to do so, but it's more about preparing ourselves mentally for basically being in, on the front lines because, you know, the Jacob Javits Center, I had been there previously to pick up a, a, a race packet for the New York uh, Marathon. You know, it's a, it's a convention center. It's not set up to be a hospital. It doesn't have the same air ventilation and, um, you know, antimicrobial places that you expect in a normal hospital. So we were putting ourselves at higher risk. Um, and, you know, this is biological, I don't want to call it biological warfare, but, um, you know, to use that analogy, the enemy is all around you, right? Mm -hmm. It's invisible. It's microscopic. You can't see it. You're breathing it in. Uh, you're, you know, it's, uh, it's on your hands. It's, you know, on your face. So it's, uh, yeah, it was a pretty stressful situation, but you know what? We had beautiful, again, standard operating procedures. We had a very low risk of infection. Um, in the end, we so effectively accomplished our mission. We saw over 1,900 patients um, within 32 days. And it was just, as somebody who, you know, is sort of like born and raised in New York City, um, I have a lot of family in, in New York, um, in New Jersey. Uh, so I've gone to New York every three or four months of my life since I've been a kid. It was, it was so weird for me to see New York and, and Times Square and Chelsea and like all those, you know, tourist areas as dead as they were. I mean, I just felt like I was on a Hollywood movie set the whole time. Um, I can only imagine. I mean, it's incredible to hear as well, like just the, the military's ability just to quickly mobilize, you know, that many um, troops onto the ground to set up a field hospital and get that many patients run through in a 32-day period, you were saying there. Um, yep. That is just, yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, and like you said, just trying to balance out as well the um, the needs of the military and the drive they have with the, the political uh, environment as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time period, I'm sure, was being on the ground out in New York at that time. Well, I think also, too, you know, we you sort of have to take, you know, they teach you in grad school when you're getting your PhD that it's a problem-solving degree. Yeah. So I was doing a lot more than just science. Like, we, we ran the world's largest, my, myself and um, these four officers from the Army, Navy, and then our wonderful team of medics, logisticians, and um, lab techs. We ran the world's largest single-day collection of COVID, uh, where we sampled over 2000 soldiers and had results back within 24 hours. Um, so in addition to like the technical capabilities and then using this brand new, uh, like on the front lines test for COVID, um, we were doing a lot of logistical planning because we were in such short supply, um, especially when we had to switch over to COVID, like our whole medical procedures had to change. And so the lab, we constantly had to do these like supply runs down to the state health department uh, towards ground zero, or you would have to contract out with um, different uh, laboratory science uh, vendors who normally supply hospitals to, to accomplish our mission. So it was a lot more than just the technical science piece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's definitely uh, more of a leadership challenge than anything. 
And I mean, how, how many uh, boots on the ground did you have there you were saying to support that? Uh, so in general, I think there was about 3,000 soldiers between the Army and the Navy who mm -hmm. were deployed out there. Uh, but then uh, my lab team, there were, I believe, 24 of us. A majority of us were from the Army. Uh, there's five officers. Um, 18 enlisted personnel and then we had a liaison from the public health service uh who oversaw captain duncan he oversaw everything listen allison uh the the big thing i wanted to chat to you about on the show today because obviously i've said before i've been following your work and you've talked a lot um around like sleep science and the use of uh, sleep control around athletes and I know it's a big growing area, especially within the performance field for uh, sports and athletic training. But obviously, with the nature of this podcast aimed more at people serving in the military or first responders as well, I don't think some of it is as applicable uh, just because of the nature mm -hmm. of their, their career paths and the work and stuff like that as well. So I was just wondering, first of all, like um, having the background in neuroscience, how did you come to get involved down the, the sleep science path as well? what sparked that interest? Uh, honestly, it's just being an athlete my entire life. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, I, I've been a two-sport athlete for as, as, probably as young as eight. Uh, I was a gymnast and a dancer. So, you know, those are very time-consuming and it's not like your middle school or high school adopts those as sports. So I was doing about uh, four to five hours of dance and gymnastics every day. Uh, but then, you know, once I entered middle school and high school I also wanted to do track and field uh, basically I did the events that you typically would do as a gymnast so long jump hurdles uh, I eventually did pole vault uh, I was one of the first female pole vaulters in the state of Ohio which again because I had a gymnastics background mm -hmm. um, so I recognized early on that sleep was very critical and important for me um, I also was fortunate enough to go to a school that valued the scholar athlete more than just the athlete. Um, so I, you know, I, I wanted to get good grades. I ended up being the valedictorian of my high school. And honestly, I attribute sleep and getting at least eight hours of sleep to making that happen. Um, even, you know, when I'd come home from gymnastics every night around 845, uh, I'd give myself about two hours to do whatever homework I had left and then uh, eat dinner at the same time and then go to bed by 11. Mm -hmm. I maintained that discipline all throughout high school. Uh, I never wavered from it, uh, developed really good sleep hygiene early on that obviously carried into college because I, you know, I was a division one athlete at an Ivy league and it was a very demanding academic course load because I went to, a public high school. I didn't go to like an Ivy League feeder school or a boarding school like many uh, people who, who go to Ivy Leagues do. So um, again, I use sleep as a secret weapon to maintain competing and being healthy as a Division One athlete, but then also being a scholar um, at an Ivy League institution. So um, I also was fortunate in that I met Dr. Mary Karskadden. I took one of her courses in sleep my junior year. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Karskadden is um, 
in my opinion, I think she should have gotten the Nobel Prize uh, for the sleep circadian finding a few years ago. Uh, nobody's research has more transformed public health in the United States than Mary's work. Uh, she's the person who discovered that as teenagers progress through puberty, the uh, sleep cycle, namely the uh, nighttime release of melatonin, naturally delays itself and so this explains the underlying mechanism for why high schoolers like to go to bed later and wake up later. And if you have too big of a discrepancy between morning rise time and school start time, then this is where you start to see these declines in academic performance. And so her research has essentially been the basis uh, for why a lot of public school systems in the U.S. now adopt uh, later school start times for late middle school and high school students. That's interesting. I mean, so obviously over there, what, what have your times uh, shifted to then for those uh, student groups? So um, I believe in the state of Maryland and Virginia, because they are mandated there, uh, majority of high school start at 920, um, whereas the ones... Uh, like ones who don't start later, they're around eight. So it's it's giving kids about an, an extra hour and 20 minutes um, to basically start performing in their peak optimal zone. And, you know, when you talk about focus, con concentration, um, all those things that are absolutely required in order to learn and retain and memorize information uh, you want to be doing that in your optimal peak zones and not anything that's misaligned with them. That's interesting. I know here in Scotland, anyway, our, uh, our public schools have changed considerably. So when I was at school, it was like a 9 a.m. start. And I think a lot of them now have switched to an earlier start of either 8.30 or 8.40. So I can only imagine the impact that's having. So that's, that's an interesting thing going through from there. With regards to sleep science then, Alison, it's coming more and more popular. More and more people are looking into it for its performance benefits. Um, but obviously on the other side of the coin, you've got the, the heroics who are, you know, like, oh, I don't need sleep. You know, you can sleep when you're dead and all this sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. What, from your perspective then, what, uh, just for everyone who may not be that clued up on sleep science, what are the, uh, the physical and psychological benefits of getting, you know, enough sleep? So... I'll focus more on the cognitive side. Um, the thing that we have most studied on the, in Army research labs has been a speed of processing, accuracy under conditions of high cognitive load, meaning uh, when you have a, a large degree of, of stimuli, visual, auditory, um, coming into the environment, your ability to make a quick and accurate decision. Obviously, that's the number one uh, priority of any soldier in our military. The other thing is emotional intelligence. That's something mm -hmm. we, uh, we just recently published a paper showing that individuals who have the opportunity to load up on sleep in preparation for sleep deprivation, um, they do much better during the, these aggressive bouts of sleep deprivation after, you know, coming in well rested and they're even better at recognizing uh, threats in the environment or not um, associating a neutral th threat as a, as a uh, or a ne neutral stimuli as a negative threat. 
uh, that's again another I think skill set that is highly valued in our military personnel that we've studied on the cognitive side of the house. Uh, the physical side of the house, um, you know, I, I think when it comes to like date, like competition day, sleep deprivation, jet lag, like that stuff kind of goes out the window because mm -hmm. you do have your adrenal system and you have the, you know, the, the act of competing to sort of compensate for what you normally would see performance deficits due to sleep deprivation. But I think where sleep deprivation takes its greatest toll on athletes is on the recovery side of the house with the day-to-day -day training. Um, you know, athletes who compromise their sleep uh, during the demanding training schedule, they're more likely to get sick. Uh, they're more likely not to... Uh, be able to push to their extremes. So if you're doing like lactic acid threshold workouts, um, you know, even with aerobic conditioning, um, you might not get to, into that heart rate zone that you prefer. Um, that's usually where I see, where we see sleep deprivation having the, the largest impact and, and compromise on performance. <laughs> you mentioned there, Alison, about... Um building up uh, that sleep on the front end if they're going to go into a period of sleep deprivation. What would that look like if they were trying to, you know, front load that uh, prior to that sleep deprivation cycle? So we use a very, um, I guess, elegant protocol that we've sort of uh, ecologically validated over the years. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to work with, his name's Dr. Tom Bulkin. He sort of has created this legacy of research at the Walter Reed Army Institute of uh, research and um, he we basically let individuals sleep for an hour to an hour and a half more each day so essentially what that means is they're going to bed the same time every night but then they're sleeping in for an extra hour to an hour and 30 minutes um, and we find that if you do this over a five-day period if you are then confronted with up to 40 hours of sustained wakefulness um, or even extending past 40 hours of sustained wakefulness, um, you're cognitively and phys uh, physically able to, you know, have stable performance across this period of sleep deprivation due to loading up on sleep um, compared to not loading up on sleep. And when we talk about uh sleep and just like the, the basic mechanics into it and that as well like regards to REM sleep and non-REM sleep if we're looking through things like sleep cycles not like how many sleep cycles is the average person going to go through per night and how long is each of those sleep cycles going to last for so on average a sleep cycle is about 90 minutes long and mm -hmm. through that time you're transitioning from states of light into deep sleep followed by a transition into REM um, there's three different stages of non-REM sleep, um, and we actually spend the first half of the night cycling more through more stages of non-REM than we do REM sleep. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the latter half of the night, which usually coincides with early morning drops in core body temperature, uh, the human, the system starts uh, favoring REM sleep over non-REM sleep. Uh, but it is sort of this beautiful trans like transition between wake, non-REM, REM, followed by a brief period of wake that we might not even consciously recognize. Uh, every 90 minutes across, you know, ideally eight hours of the night. 
if you're in, um, I think is it once you're in REM sleep, you know, and you suddenly are woken, is that the point where you feel you're most groggy because you're in that deep uh, state of sleep? Um, so that is true. So it's um, it, that, that like you want to try to complete a, a full cycle. Um, and people who do tend to wake up prematurely in non-REM sleep, um, you do see what we call sleep inertia, where this uh, it takes a longer period upon your morning wake awakening to uh, wake your brain up, essentially, mm-hmm. um, if you've you know woken up out of non-REM compared to REM sleep. Okay, and is getting over that period? Is it just a case of? time you've got to just go for the time period to get over it or is there anything you can do to boost that forward a little bit i'm just thinking from perspective of maybe like a first responder or something like that like your firefighter who's maybe you know managed to catch uh, a couple of minutes of sleep during like a long shift and then they suddenly get a shout you know and they're just woken up um i mean when it comes to first responders it's it's never an easy solution so mm-hmm. it, you know for for the gen pop um it's easy to train yourself to wake up out of REM sleep simply by going to bed and waking up the same time every day. Uh, Because when you do that, your body, we have, you know, these circadian clocks, these biological clocks that latch onto routine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You no longer need an alarm clock to wake up. So your body, if if you keep your uh, schedule consistent, will wake up after its last cycle through REM sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, But with first responders, no, there's there's really no way I could think of right now to um, train their bodies just because of their schedules being so chaotic. You know, yeah, their yeah. biological clocks and their circadian systems never really truly adapt to anything that they're doing. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, survival, some survival in that moment and then treating your, your rest days as like work days in terms of recovery. Okay, cool. And... I want to go back a little bit here, Alison. So obviously when you were just telling us about um, your time in high school and then college as a competitive athlete, you mentioned about sleep hygiene and how important that was to you. Uh, could you just elaborate on what sleep hygiene is? Yeah, so um, a lot of sleep hygiene has to do with routine, right? So this idea, you know, we have a bathing routine. Uh, we might have a routine uh, before we do training in the morning, or, you know, in the afternoon, we also have a morning routine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's no different than that. So it's basically this idea that, you know, about an hour before you, your intended bedtime, which should be consistent, uh, you start putting away your work, uh, you put away all electronics because electronics emit blue light, which can uh, diminish the release of melatonin, which is absolutely critical for falling asleep and staying asleep. Um, you know, you can take a hot shower, something to, you know, sort of calm your body, uh, calm your mind. Um, you can take like holistic sleep supplements, just uh, that's really what sleep hygiene is, is, uh, you know, this sort of cookie cutter, choose your own adventure routine that doesn't involve electronics, that involves mm-hmm. low minimal activity uh, to prepare your body and, and your mind to, to, you know, tune off and, and go to sleep. Yeah. And how long were you saying it's advisable to, you know, stop screen time before trying to get to sleep? 
at least an hour before bed. Um, you know, that's it's something I, to this day, still practice. I mean, <laughs> if I could practice it up in the International Space Station, <laughs> you know, if and when I go to space, I would uh -huh. too. Because um, even if you're on, you know, Instagram and you're doing this mindless scrolling, mm -hmm. uh, you're still going to get like these, these peaks and, and emotional responsiveness, uh, whether it's, it's a, you know, positive, negative, or neutral emotion, you're still uh, like actively working your mind and processing information and, and you don't want to really be processing any information an hour or so before bed. That's, I know it's something um, with some of the younger athletes I've worked with within my career. It's just trying to stress the importance of, you know, reducing screen time before bed or even just if they can't go down to establish like, you know, um, blue light filters on the phones and stuff, just to try and minimize that. But as you say, there's still that emotional response through their scrolling periods. For you looking at people's sleep patterns and stuff like that, what would you say is more important for someone to focus on? Or is it both to you? Is it, is it sleep quality or sleep quantity that matters most for an individual? Well, based on the research that I've done for the Army, absolutely sleep quality. Um, you know, that's sort of our, um, when you talk about these technology pieces that we're trying to transition to the front lines, um, mm -hmm. our main focus is we know the Army operates um, under conditions of minimal sleep sometimes. Um, so how can we take four hours of sleep and make it feel like eight hours? Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is actually possible. We have uh, some unique technologies. I can't really discuss them, but um, we do have technologies that can do that now. Um, and that sort of got me thinking, you know, under conditions of high stress, sleep quality is number one priority. Um, under conditions of recovery or the, the downtime after, you know, say deployment or post-mission, quantity is important, right? Um, you know, it goes back to those sleep banking, sleep extension studies I talked about before. Uh, that's really when you want to focus on sleep quality. And I know you say that you mentioned very briefly there about uh, some technology and stuff like that. Obviously on civilian street, um, there's a lot of sleep apps and stuff out there right now. What's your thoughts around them? Are they handy or are they just okay just to give you a rough idea of, you know, how your sleep is going each night? So, you know, I don't, I would say a lot of us take on this position that there isn't just a best sleep wearable out there. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there are use case bases for each uh, because some, for example, like the Whoop has created this beautiful platform where you have behavioral accountability and group accountability and you could, you know, have people sign up uh, with you and you can see how much each other's sleeping and what your recovery levels are like and what your daily physiological strains are like. That's that's a beautiful thing for the military, right? Like mm -hmm. it's an easy way for commanders and leaders to keep track of their soldiers' progress and then step in with uh, inter-individualized interventions when necessary. Um, and then, you know, there are other wearables who, um, that do have like the um, closer validity, as we call, to the gold standard, which is polysomnography. Uh, which is, you know, going to a sleep lab, getting hooked up with EEG, EKG, um, 
O2 sensors to fully capture sleep staging. Um, at the end of the day, these wearables, in my opinion, will never be as good as the gold standard, uh, but they can get pretty dang close. And uh, there are some wearables out there that um, do have a you know, very good clinical validity. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it just depends, or, or we can even use like the Apple Watch, for example, you know, they, they have like the bedtime function on, on the Apple Watch is I love it because it, it gets people set up to have a good sleep routine and it holds you accountable. You know, it might dim your, the lighting level on your phone at a specific time. It might block text messaging at a specific time. Um, it can even play, you know, soothing music for you waking up in the morning. Like that's, there's, I don't really think there's one best app or wearable out there. And obviously you, you mentioned there about like the use of it by command, if they want to have a look, you know, the broad strokes of things as well as individualization of it. I've seen a lot of stuff come up recently around sleep chronotypes as well. Like, you know, the bear, the wolf, the dolphin, stuff like that. What's your yes. thoughts around this, Alison? Is it is it just nice to know, like you know, how people function, like where their high points are during the day, or does it have much validity as well within the research? Oh, we can have a whole separate podcast about that. So um, I know I sometimes talk in very generalized statements, but that mm. is my very specific area of expertise. Is okay. uh, I've done a lot of work on chronotyping and uh, the genetics around. Um, time-dependent behaviors over the years. So mm -hmm. um, as you know, there are these, um, they're called transcriptional translational factors that determine the timing or the, the speed at which the human um, biological processes entrain to things in the environment. Um, and these, these transcriptional translational feedback loops um, have these positive and negative elements that um, determine like each individual human's speed of, of entraining to the environment. Well, because of that, um, there's this one negative factor called PER2 that uh, we found that naturally occurring mutations in the PER2 gene can lead to a, a, a morning preference. Um, on the flip side, we found that a separate naturally occurring mutation in these uh, PER genes can lead to an evening preference. And that is something that I 100% want to spend my military career sort of aligning missions uh, based around somebody's individual chronotype, which we could easily do now through a high throughput genetic screen that, you know, you can get results back in 24 or 48 hours. That sounds interesting. So obviously, like, potentially building up um, squads of individuals who have that same chronotype sort of thing so you can align them with those certain mission packages as well. That's yeah. pretty interesting. It's about working smarter, not harder. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned there about genetically as well. I was just wondering, for, you know, historically we hear about these, um, you know, high performers who survive on, you know, five hours of sleep a night um, mm -hmm. out there. Are these individuals just genetically predisposed to being able to survive on this limited amount of sleep, or is it a case of it's like a bit of a ticking time bomb for them that they'll get away with it now, but it'll catch up on the back end for them? I, I'm taking this from the standpoint of behavioral genetics. I think people who possess the short sleep gene, uh, it's a naturally occurring mutation, and it's called DEC1, uh, sort of pre-select for their jobs. If I were to do a 
uh, we call it a, um, uh, a genotyping assessment and all the military generals of the US, I guarantee, most of them would have this short sleep gene. Mm -hmm. uh, same with US presidents, same with you know, CEOs of, of uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies. It's, it's pre-selection early on. Uh, you know, that's something from the work we've done in, in animal models of behavioral genetics has extrapolated and translated over very well to, to the human operator. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do more with genetic landscape than, you know, training the body to get by on less. <laughs> well, that, that's really interesting, uh, Alison. Just interesting to see it from that standpoint as well, because I know a lot of people look at high performers who are, you know, pulling in the <laughs> short uh, five hours or so of sleep. You know, and they're trying to match it, but they can't physically just because they're not uh, no. close to that. So. They can't, and you know, that's something we like. A lot of the, the rich work that the Army Research Labs have done has looked at these inter-individual differences in sleep deprivation. Uh, we, they're, you know, they're trait-like, we call them trait-like phenotypes, where very, very early on, genetics aside, we can pick out who's sensitive and who's resilient just by doing a simple uh, neural behavioral assessment of reaction time. Um, you know, that right there just shows you just how how much our ability to function at a high level is tied to our actual genetics and, and, you know, individual biology more so than our, you know, environmental upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no, it's not that environmental upbringing doesn't have an, a, you know, impact. It's not black and white, but um, I do think at the end of the day, you know, our baseline, when it comes to baselining individuals, a large part of that is dictated by biology and genetics. Okay, Alison, I just want to try and bring it back around just a little bit, just regards to um, some of the guys who'll be listening to this podcast. So, as I said, military first responders, that sort of stuff. For these guys, what would be your advice to them, say, if they are coming either from the first uh, responder standpoint or coming off a, a late shift, you know, pattern and trying to set themselves up for good sleep? Or, you know, for the guys who are deployed and are running you know night ops for a prolonged period of time and are coming back and trying to get sleep when everyone else is awake what would be your recommendations for them in those circumstances to get themselves out for the best possible sleep they can so in those situations we um you know we recommend we call it uh micro sleeping um because when you're coming back from a night mission you know something i also have experience with is you're not uh at some point, you're not going to be able to sleep at a time when your body wants to be awake. We can't change as humans that we are day active creatures, no matter how long we've been, you know, operating at night. Um, so as soon as you start hitting that peak in cortisol and daily levels of, of alertness that are, of course, driven by chemical and endocrine changes, you can't sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but you can sleep before that. So that's something we do recommend is, you know, getting two or three hours, uh, right after you come back from a night mission. And then, um, in the afternoon when we have this natural, uh, biologically driven dip in core body temperature that increases our levels of fatigue and sleepiness, that's when you can get an extra two or three hours. Um, and, you know, Put in naps 
20 to 30 minutes here and there. Uh, you know, I think even people who aren't first responders should take a 20 or 30 minute nap once or twice throughout the day. Uh, but with soldiers and first responders, like just trying to get as much sleep as you can during that recovery phase uh, is, is absolutely key because, you know, sleep is kind of like a bank account. The more mm -hmm. you put in, the more you can take out. Um, and so you want to build up that bank account. You want to build up that sleep tank, um, even if it's not ideal. Uh, when it comes to first responders and soldiers, how they approach sleep hygiene is very different from the general population. Thank you very much for that, uh, Alison. I think a lot of people find that really interesting and insightful to take forward with their own practice. Obviously, with every guest I have on, Alison, I'm always intrigued to find out, you know, what they're engaged in for their own uh, development, like continual professional development. You know, if you're a leader, like it's absolutely essential uh, to you know, be a cheerleader, be a coach, be a mentor, to take that those types of uh, approaches to, towards le leadership than the old, uh, you know, army command and control. Uh, you know, obviously command and control has its place here and there, but I think on, in, in you know today's army, it's more about collaboration and um, uh, friendly communication than anything else. Cool, that's awesome. Thank you very much for that, Allison. And then obviously, you know, anyone who's listening to this who wants to find out a bit more about you would like to reach out, what's the best ways they can get in touch with you? So I, uh, I am on Instagram. Uh, that's part of my army job now is, you know, showcasing our talents to the public. It's uh, Doc Jock, Z-Z-Z, D-O-C-J-O-C-K-Z-Z-Z. Uh, I also have a popular science book that I wrote back when I was a fellow uh, it's called Meathead Unraveling the Athletic Brain, and it sort of uh, dissects the neuroplasticity and the um, adaptive changes that happen in the brain with not just exercise, but sort of what separates uh, an elite athlete from an amateur. Uh, it also serves as like a performance enhancement manual by leveraging uh, you know, our own in biology uh, to enhance performance. Uh, so that's, you know, those are two ways you could support me. I appreciate it. Cool. No worries, Alison. I'll make sure I will pop them in our show notes along with your book recommendations as well. Um, Alison, this is a conversation I've been waiting a while to have a chat with you and I've really looked forward to it and it hasn't disappointed. It's been awesome to sit down and pick <laughs> your brain. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to meet and speak with me. No, absolutely. You know, anything we can do for to better soldiers and our, our men and women on the front lines. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops. Thank you.